Hello and welcome to another episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med, a prime resource of evidence-based education about sexual medicine for students, practitioners, and the public. Today, we have the honor of uh, having Anna Myers with us, uh, a certified nurse practitioner in urology and urologic female pelvic medicine. She's a certified sex counselor and part of the female sexual medicine team at UH, University Hospitals in Cleveland. We're very excited about having her today because today we're going to cover several things. we got a twofer going on, but she's the perfect person to talk to about this. Uh, we're going to talk about um, pelvic prolapse, number one, and then lubricants and moisturizers, something that can be very, very confusing to people. So good morning, and thank you for joining us, Anna. We appreciate it. Oh, I'm always happy to be here with you, Terry. Thank you yeah. for having me. And and this, by the by, is uh, uh, Anna's third uh, podcast. She was on for number 21 and 31. So she's uh, she's a regular here and we appreciate it. So to start the conversation, um, explain prolapse. What What is it when, when we talk to a patient about and use the word prolapse? Yeah, that's kind of some scary terminology there because a lot of women didn't often don't realize that anything can prolapse in their body. Um, but pelvic organ prolapse is this like herniation of the vaginal walls or uterus into the vagina. And that can come down partially. Uh, it can come down towards the vaginal opening. It can even come all the way out of the vagina, you know, in some circumstances. We see it about three to 8% of women will report symptoms of our signs of prolapse. And they feel like kind of like a bulge in their vagina, or they may even visibly can see that protrusion more. So like when they're wiping or they're sitting down in that position, 12% of women will undergo a surgery for prolapse in their lifetime. So, you know, this is not uncommon risk factors for prolapse, Good. you know, certainly aging, yeah. Uh, parity, those kinds of things. 50% of women that have children will have some sort of prolapse in their lifetime. Yeah. I was going to say who, who gets it, you know, is there, is there an, an age limit or, you know, who gets this? And and like you're saying the risk factors, um, but talk about the age factor. Yeah. So, you know, as we age those tissues, we lose that estrogen in our uh, vagina. It comes from those ovaries. And we've talked about estrogen, you know, for lots of reasons. Um, but one of the reasons, you know, it helps strengthen those tissues. And also, you know, women have children, we walk on our feet, gravity's kind of pulling down on that uh, pelvic floor. Uh, we can experience this prolapse. Uh, the prevalence is really unknown because not all women seek treatment. Um, but we know that about 20% of the women on the waiting list for gynecological surgeries, you know, it's for prolapse. No, I, I have to ask this question because it's, it's, I'm very aware of some statistics in other nations. Um, uh, people have talked about doing um, elective cesarean. You talked about having babies um, causing prolapse, which is a huge uh, reason for why we see prolapse. But people talk about protective cesarean uh, for uh, not for protecting against prolapse. Do you, what do you think of that? Uh, do you, does anybody in your world talk to people about that? Uh, you know, with me being on the other end of the problem, more um, <laughs> <laughs> I do not um, do any kind of counseling in that um, area. 
I don't I don't know if in the United States I don't believe that that is the case in the United States that we That's recommend right. cesareans. Yeah. I think it's more for other reasons. Well, in some South American nations, they there's a very high prevalence of that. And and I've run into a number of people here in the United States that you know, thought that was good, but I just, oh my gosh, uh, that's a little bit overboard to protect yourself against prolapse. So, you know, people have babies, they they have a number of babies, constipation, maybe they're postmenopausal. So, so they get the, uh, they get prolapse, uh, things fall. So what about, how does this impact sexual issues? You know, sexual dysfunction is one of the symptoms associated with prolapse that actually might motivate a woman to get some help. Um, and the other ones being bladder and bowel. Uh, women with pelvic organ prolapse, they're likely to restrict their sexual activity um, for a couple of reasons. You know, this perceived loss of attractiveness, you know, with the prolapse, they feel like body, you know, certainly body image goes into issues with sexual function. And then also the fear of incontinence and incontinence during intercourse is a, a very real fear. You know, that's something I really, I'm so happy you said, and I really want to kind of underscore that and put a, a marker through that, that we really get that message across because, um, and, and I'll just say it, I think especially for our, our male practitioners and students listening, that um, to, 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 to think that you might urinate on your partner during sex is a very real fear mm -hmm. and sure. uh, just something you have to be aware of if you're going to have any kind of empathy or sympathy towards helping people resolve this, that, that, that is a real fear. And so, yeah. Um, and it doesn't it, really matter how large the prolapse is. A small prolapse can make you feel that way. A large prolapse, it's not by the degree of the prolapse. What about pain? Is pain a, a real issue with, with uh, prolapse? Can it be? Uh, typically, I don't believe we see as much uh, issues with pain. Uh, you know, it might be a little uncomfortable, that bulge feeling, um, but those muscles are so lax that they're allowing that herniation to occur. Uh, typically, we do not see as much pain as, or at least I haven't found any studies specifically on that. Typically, I see more pain with the higher tone pelvic floor, the, the pelvic floor where the, the muscles are too tight. Well, that leads me into the next question. I mean, how do you treat the uh, pelvic organ prolapse? It sort of de depends on the degree of bother. Um, for women that are not bothered by their prolapse or have no health consequences, such as frequent urinary tract infections, they're able to empty their bladder, it's not putting pressure back on their kidneys, they're not having extra leakage, that sort of thing. You know, there's nothing saying that they have to have a specific treatment for that prolapse. We can monitor. That is a, a form of treatment monitoring. Um, for a mild prolapse, sometimes having some pelvic floor physical therapy, so some of those exercises can help improve that sensation of the bulge um, or the pressure symptoms. I won't say that it'll correct it, but it can help with the symptoms. Um, and of course, pessaries, uh, that is another conservative option um, that we can offer to women. Uh, we know that that can resolve symptoms and it's minimal risk. Um, you know, that 86% of women who desire a pessary and are successfully fitted with it can continue to use it. And that's a silicone ring. It's similar to like a, a diaphragm. And um, that's an appointment where you're fitted for that device. And 
It's something that the woman can be taught how to take it in and out herself, or she can come to the office for cleanings. Um, of course, those with bothersome symptoms uh, who decline or either fail these kind of treatment options, so there is surgical you know, treatments, obviously. And there's a variety of ways to do that uh, surgery, vaginal, abdominal, laparoscopic, robotic approaches. There's there's always something new going on in that world. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned the pessaries so much because um, of the women who are symptomatic, a lot of people don't want surgery. And I don't think that um, our maybe listeners that are going to become physicians, maybe be those people doing surgeries, really appreciate pessaries as much. I know our residents don't know as much about fitting pessaries because everybody's in a rush to go to surgery. Tell us, you you did a lot of that in, in your office. T tell us a little bit about just, you know, what you tell people in, in for the use of pessaries and how you fit people for them. You know, Pessaries are a great option. They're not for everyone. Um, there is certainly pretty much nothing that I do in my office that doesn't have its own risk factors. So, you know, pessaries, there is always a chance that at some point you might have some constipation, some infection, um, some discomfort, those kinds of things. Uh, so, but I, you know, try to pre-warn that, you know, with patients and try to give them uh, ways to navigate all of that mainly, you know, one of the main things is I like for them to use some estrogen cream. Estrogen cream will acidify that vagina and make the microbiome, uh, that there will be less bacteria there. You know, when you have a pessary, your body's going to see it as like a foreign object. It's going to create white blood cells. So there's going to be some discharge. That's not uncommon. It's rare that I, I don't see some discharge with pessaries, but it's a very normal discharge, just like we all have normal discharges from our vagina. Um, so teaching patients that, uh, if it's of course, foul odor or, you know, a discolored, um, of course, bleeding, those kinds of things, I always want them to come in and get treatment. Um, but using that estrogen cream or a, another vaginal acidifier, if they don't want to use estrogen cream, um, you know, is a very proactive way to reduce some of those issues that women can have. And then of course, making sure that they don't get constipated because if you get constipated, um, that stool pressing against the pessary is going to make you more open to having what they call erosion, where it can kind of make a little bit of an ulcer, or, uh, deteriorate the tissue in that area. So, and then keeping regular checkups. I don't want a woman to go off with that pessary and not at least see me at least once a year. If they're taking care of itself, you know, that's great. That's what I want. But, uh, you know, I just want to make sure that they're um, able to manage it well. So you're going to have uh, patients take that, take it out once in a while and clean it and put it back in once in a while. What what if they are, are older and not a good candidate for surgery um, and not a good candidate for trying to get that thing out themselves? What, what do you do in that situation? You know, those women, I typically have them come about every three to four months for a pessary cleaning in the office. So that's important when you start this treatment because are they able to get themselves to the office? If they have any complications, are their family able to bring them in? Uh, you know, and making sure that at least one family member knows, I tell them, you know, make sure somebody knows that this is here. Cause I don't want you to like, you know, things happen to people, people get in car accidents, people have strokes. You don't want to end up in a, a nursing facility and nobody knows this is around and you're getting urinary tract infections and nobody knows what's going on. It hasn't been cleaned in six months or a year or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I we've, we've all seen that where it's just been there for years and just people are like unaware of it. Um, You, you mentioned putting like a ring in. Um, how often you, I think you mentioned this, 
how often is fitting somebody with a pessary successful? Uh, the exact percentage of, I, you know, I would say it's pretty high. I don't have an exact statistic, you know, from studies, but we know that 86% of women who desire a pessary and are successfully filled, fitted will continue to use it. I would say in my own practice, it's probably a, at least three-fourths, okay. if not higher. Um, is, is it always the women. You know, I know there's different kind of pessaries. What are your favorite go-tos? You know, some women, it, the, the ring won't always work. Yeah. What's, what's your go-to after my that? tip? Yeah, my typical go-to is the ring, like you like you were mentioning. It's just easier to take in and out, yeah. Um, yeah. more flexible. Um, I certainly have some companies that I prefer uh, using their products. They're a little bit more flexible. And then, the you know, the Galhorn would be my second go-to for no. that patient that we can't keep that prolapse up otherwise. And that suctions in. So that's likely a pessary that they're going to have to come in the office and let me take it out and, and clean it for them because it's just a little trickier getting that one out. Now you, you mentioned uh, high tone pelvic uh, muscles. Talk a little bit. How does pelvic floor physical therapy fit into this um, paradigm? Well, sometimes, you know, with pelvic uh, laxity, those muscles aren't you know, they do not have enough tone. So um, there can be pelvic floor exercises. This is your patient more that's going to be doing the Kegels, um, those kinds of exercises that can be taught by a pelvic floor physical therapist. Um, you know, certainly some of the women, there's so much laxity that it, that's why it is so hard to fit them with the pessary because there just isn't enough support there to keep that pessary in. And using a pessary in, improve sexual function um, and Second question, can you leave it in during, if you have a ring, can you leave it in during sexual function? You know, it sort of depends on the patient and their vagina and their architecture. Um, you know, I recommend all of my patients taking their ring pessary out um, for sexual intercourse. I know that there are some that believe like perhaps the rings without the support can be left in uh, for intercourse. Uh, but this doesn't exactly fit like a diaphragm does. It doesn't go up over the cervix. It's kind of fit in a little bit different way. So there likely may not be room, you know, if it's penetrative intercourse is what you're going for. Certainly right. if it's, you know, right. other kinds of intercourse, you know, that kind of intimacy, you can just leave it right in. But um, I often, you know, teach my patients to take it out. I have, I was thinking about this as we were preparing for today. I have a patient that uh, she's had the pessary for several years. I think I've been working with her for at least three or four years. And, um, you know, Friday night, that's when she takes it out. She cleans it. She puts her estrogen cream in and it's worked for them for a very long time. They're very happy. And she is like adamant that she does not want surgery. This is the treatment that she's going to go with. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I, and I think that this, you know, to emphasize that this is a great option for people because not everybody's crazy about surgery. Um, but for those patients who do get surgery um, and you're, you know, there, there's always can be uh, complications with surgery. Um, talk about some of those, you know, you've probably worked with people in follow-up after surgery for their prolapse. Talk a little bit about that, people who've had surgery. You know, certainly there is uh, the possibility of, you know, de novo pain that uh, somebody that didn't have pain with sex, uh, you know, before surgery might have pain afterwards. Um, certainly taking a multidisciplinary approach where you're working with pelvic floor physical therapy is very helpful for those patients. Um, the other concerns 
uh, certainly would be for urinary incontinence. Uh, you know, when you have a prolapse surgery and you put that prolapse back up where it needs to go, then, you know, that prolapse sort of makes a kink and it's a little bit hard to probably demonstrate that over a podcast, but it, if you can kind of imagine when that prolapse comes down, it makes a kink with the urethra. So you're going to have less of that stress incontinence when you have the prolapse, when we put the prolapse back up where it needs to go, you know, that tissue, there certainly is the same risk factors for prolapse as there is for stress incontinence. And so that tissue, you know, is not, uh, you know, it's a little lax there and it can allow for that stress incontinence. So with those patients, we, you know, all of our, you know, patients that are going through pelvic organ prolapse surgery, we recommend urodynamics. I I don't even know if really we have any surgeons that would do surgery without doing urodynamics first. Good. Maybe in a cloesis situation, but maybe, you know, that would be maybe the only one. And I don't even know for sure that they would do it in that in all circumstances, but um, doing that urodynamics, we can kind of find out, we reduce that prolapse during that testing. And, uh, with that testing, we can determine if somebody's, you know, going to be having stress urinary incontinence afterwards and determine if maybe we want to do something for that while we're in there doing that prolapse surgery, like a, a midgery sling or some bulking agent, something like that. Awesome. What, you know, if there's pain and, and scarring or shortened vagina, things like that, what do you do for, um, the issues that could come up post-op. Certainly estrogen cream and um, pelvic floor physical therapy, dilators, uh, which is something we use with a lot of patients, not even patients that are going through the surgery, but that is very helpful for those patients uh, that need them. That's great. Anything else about prolapse you want to say? I didn't want to really focus on you know, the surgeries that were done. Um, I really wanted to talk mainly and let people know about the non-surgical things that are out there for people and and their success rate and and how successful these can be, especially for people who don't want surgery. So I I really appreciate your your knowledge on that. Is there anything that I haven't brought up that you think is important for people to know about? You know, I think uh, a couple of things. I would say one that kind of surprised me as I was preparing for this is that 64% of women in the urogyne clinics report some form of sexual dysfunction, which is something that I screen all of my patients for, but I bet there's a lot of sexual dysfunction that's not screened for in those, you know, we know sexual dysfunction in general isn't being screened for in a lot of clinics, but boy, right there is one opportunity to reach women um, with information that, you know, it's a lot of teaching. A lot of women, do, you know, aren't aware of the physiology of all of this. And so we have a lot, a great opportunity for teaching, I believe in our urogyne clinics around sexual function and screening uh, for issues. That was one thing that kind of popped out at me. Um, and the other is that, you know, sexual function is very complex and, you know, it can improve after surgery for prolapse because yes, you can, you know, as you, can improve that body image. Certainly that can help. Um, but it's like, you know, we've sort of said this with men, you know, it's like, I can help you, you know, with your erections, but that doesn't mean that your partner is going to want to have sex with you afterwards. You know, sexual function is very complex. So, you know, sometimes having those conversations with your patients before the surgery and then after the surgery can help with all those expectations because there could be lots of other factors playing into this aside from just the prolapse. Those are great points, especially the one about just asking about sexual function. And I think 
every episode in the 40 episodes, almost 40 episodes that I've done with this podcast, just every person that knows anything about sexual medicine have all been, you know, you've got to ask, you've got to ask about function. You've got to ask about function. What a great teachable moment that uh, when in talking about prolapse, about sexual function, that is a great point. I wanted to take the, the last portion of our time together and talk a, a bit about lubricants and moisturizers because there's tons of them out there. I mean, you just type that into your computer and you're just going to have something to read all day. Um, but I think there's a lot of, of, of uh, confusion about who should use them, why they're used. Um, you know, can a young person use them? Is it just for postmenopausal women? What What's up with that? So yeah, tell me the 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 why. The, the skinny why on is- uh, lubricants and moisturizers here. Uh, you know, lubricants and moisturizers. It's something that I recommend for all of my patients, young, old, middle middle aged, everybody. Awesome. It just makes intercourse, you know, more enjoyable, more fun. And you know, lubricants and moisturizers. They're non hormonal products. Um, that are often, you know, they're a great way to start that initial treatment for a genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Um, certainly estrogen cream. And I know you've had discussions on that, but these are adjunct treatments. And sometimes they may be even the only treatment that some women use if they don't want to use like a hormonal product. Um, vaginal lubricants, they're intended for sexual activity. So the way I kind of remember it, L is for lub- for lovemaking, M, which is moisturizers for maintenance. Uh, <laughs> so I, I know that's out there. Uh, a lot of people say that, but um, lubricants, they reduce that friction. Of course, um, they increase the lubrication and comfort. We have a variety of products. There's water-based, silicone-based, oil-based, um, but they're short acting. You know, they're applied to the vagina and vulva, you know, before, and maybe even you might need some additional during, um, and you can put them on your devices, like your vibrators or your partner. Uh, vaginal moisturizers, they're just designed to adhere to the vaginal mucosa. They allow those cells to retain moisture. Uh, they're longer acting and um, you would use those on a regular basis, you know, typically every one to three days, depending on your symptoms and atrophy. So, you know, it's a great discussion on lubricants and, and there's, you like you said, there's many different kinds and, and I think there's pros and cons. I just hear the pros and cons all the time of, you know, should I just go to the my my cabinet and use a, a vegetable oil, or should I get water based or silicone based? What what's your go to? What what is your feeling about lubricants? What people should do because there's so many choices. Yeah, it sort of depends on the situation. So, you know, certainly, you know, a simple cost effective is just like you said, going to the cabinet and getting some coconut oil or some extra virgin olive oil, those kinds of things. But let's say if they're trying to, you know, use latex condoms, you know, that's, you know, they're very, the, the, um, efficacy of the condom, it's rapidly deteriorated with like your oil-based lubricants. And then also, you know, we have to kind of think about if they're trying to get pregnant or, you know, the viability of sperm, um, that sort of thing that can be affected by what you're using. So, um, there are some that are particularly the, the right pH, the right osmolality, uh, that sort of thing. And pH and osmolality, that's more with like a water-based product, any products that have water-based um, components to it. And, you know, the pH of the vagina, and I think that's probably where you hear a lot of the controversy to me. That's where I always hear it's like, 
what's the pH, what's the osmolality, that kind of thing. Yep. But yep. your healthy pH of the vagina is 3.8 to 4.5 and your rectum is actually closer to seven. So really your lubricant that you use for uh, vaginal intercourse, like, you know, probably isn't the one that you're going to use for your rec- anal intercourse. Um, and a high pH, you know, is going to lead to BV. We all know that that's the the problem with the pH. And it also can um, support HIV survival. So this is very important, you know, information. The other part is your osmolality and your vaginal secretions around 260 to 290. So you don't, if if you can help it, you don't want a lubricant that has an osmolality greater than 380. Um, but there's, they're out there, they're on the market. Um, People can find out what these are, right? When mm-hmm. they have these products, okay. They certainly can. Now, it, I know it has to do more with, with water-based, what about just saying, I'm not going to mess with that. You know, I want to go to a, you know, a, a lubricant that just, I don't have to <laughs> read the box and just use what, what's your, what's your choice for that? Probably my go-to always typically is Uberlube um, between myself and my colleagues. That's the one we've had the most success with. And that's probably a what based? That's, that's a silicone based. Silicone based. Yeah. yeah. A little bit more slippery. Um, I would say my second one is probably slippery stuff. That's been a good one for a lot of my patients. The ones that maybe do not like the Uber lube for whatever reason they might have, um, you know, cause everybody's, you know, chemistry is a little different. Um, what, what about, um, the use of, um, moisturizers who, what, when, where <laughs> for moisturizers, can anybody um, use them? Yeah. Anybody can use them. Uh, certainly, I think that's the thing about, you know, that part of women's body, you know, we put creams and lotions and potions and everything everywhere else all over our body. But then oftentimes we kind of like leave that, that part of our body, you know, kind of just hanging, you know, high and dry. Right, so right. using a moisturizer there makes a lot of sense. And uh, probably my go-to in that department is V-Magic. Uh, I like it. It's made of beeswax wax and extra virgin olive oil. Um, I like the ingredients and, you know, it's worked really well for most of my patients and my colleagues and I have tried other, you know, moisturizers ourselves because we try to, you know, recommend things we use ourselves. And yeah. uh, that's been kind of my go-to there. Okay. And, you know, is it, is it just like you said, good old fashioned, just do a moisturizer or are there people that really, that you really stressed, look, you need a moisturizer, like, a postmenopausal woman with um, genital to urinary syndrome of menopause. I mean, yeah. So mm-hmm. I would definitely recommend estrogen first. That's always going to be my first go-to. Um, it certainly yeah. can take care of their symptoms, but um, always recommending adjunct therapy if they need it. And it also depends on their their symptoms. If estrogen isn't taking care of it, and we've tried several, you know, estrogen products or DHEA that kind of thing. Uh, it sort of just depends on what their actual symptoms are, That's like the cool. irritation, the dryness, the burning, that kind of thing. So, you know, just in, in conclusion with, with the lubricants and the moisturizer, um, tell us just what you tell people insofar as, uh, and usually we're not supposed to use talk about products, but, you know, talk about uh, generally what you just say, go get this and go get this. What yeah, do you say? I... I pretty much, I have a little email <laughs> with my favorite resources and, you Good. know, you can pretty much buy everything on Amazon. 
Right. So you don't even have to go into the drugstore and ask those kind of embarrassing questions like, please show me where this is or, you know, which product. Because you, if you go to that aisle, you're going to be overwhelmed. There is like tons exactly. of products. Exactly. It's so overwhelming. I, I just, and so that's kind of been my fix for that is just giving people information and also websites that they can, you know, read about different things as well. So that's awesome. That's, that's kind of what I was wanting to, to hear. Um, you know, tell us in, in conclusion, what things you want to leave with our listeners insofar as prolapse and or the lubricant and moisturizer, your parting shots. So parting shots. I, let me think about this. Oh, I would say for that new student who's coming along, you know, now that we've gotten you over the shock of knowing that parts of your body can prolapse um, <laughs> and teaching women, you know, you know, what to do and, and also just being able to relieve their fears um, when they come in, like you were talking earlier, having empathy, um, appreciating, you know, how significant that fear of incontinence, um, like during intercourse can be the bowel and bladder issues. They're so life-changing and so affect the quality of life uh, for women, you know, like with the incontinence, you know, if you have a prolapse, that's so significant, maybe having to take clothes with you and pads and all of that. So, you know, there's a, it's a whole lot of things that can be affected. Um, And just teaching physiology and screening women for these issues. That would be my next parting shot. For sure. And I think, I don't know if we brought this up, but I, I know you feel this way, but just a lot of people, not only the incontinence, but they, they feel like they're ugly there. You know, they have a bulge there and they feel like it's <laughs> creepy. And, and that again is such a real feeling that they just don't think that's cute anymore. I don't know. What I think as you, as we age, um, and our bodies change. There's already some of those feelings setting in, in some, you know, ways for some women, um, and men. And then when you have this physical change that you can really see what it's doing and what it's, you know, perhaps causing you symptoms, you know, that that's like a reality check there. So, um, being able to correct that is, you know, significant. Great. Well, I, I, really love and thank you uh, that we had this time together and kind of tapped your expertise. And uh, we just love everything you're doing at there at Case Western with all your colleagues. Um, and so thank you for your time again. And uh, I hope you have a good holiday. You, you too so as well, Terry. Thank you so much for having me. It was so enjoyable getting to talk about all of my favorite stuff. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.